0: Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where experts are given just six minutes to present their argument. This is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. This week's topics include the organic and anarchic character of effective state development, as well as how to defend Taiwan against a potential Chinese invasion of the island. This is truly a variety show, as these topics are so incredibly different. Our first speaker will be Jack Katz, who is one of our nation's leading sociologists. Jack is well known for his book, Seductions of Crime. Today, he will be speaking about the increasing loss of central control over city development and the success of organic nature of neighborhoods. Jack is interested in how the decline of central authority allows for unexpected and often wonderful neighborhood changes. Jack will discuss his case case study of the city of Hollywood, California, as a sample. Our second speaker today is James Holmes, who holds the J.C. Wiley Chair of Maritime Strategy at the Naval War College. You may recall that we had Jim on What Happens Next about a year ago. Jim will discuss strategies that Taiwan can employ to defend itself. He will also discuss the implications of China's recent successful test of a hypersonic ballistic missile and how it would change the balance of power in the South China Sea. During the live call, please feel free to email me questions at larrybernstein1 at gmail.com. All right, let's begin today's program with our first speaker, Jack Katz. Jack, please go ahead.
1: Thanks, Larry. In 1960, residents of the Hollywood section of Los Angeles were modestly differentiated both in their demographics and in the character of their neighborhoods. At the millennium, Hollywood's residents lived in low-income Mexican and Central American enclaves, in strictly observant Orthodox Jewish communities, in officially designated historic zones, in Bohemian areas, around homeless population centers, close to street markets for buying sex and contraband drugs, and within affluent canyon neighborhoods. The question is, what do we learn about the forces shaping city life by tracing how this complex of neighborhoods emerged? From 1915 to 1965, two world wars and a depression drew populist deference to centers of power. Twenty years after the end of World War II, the charisma of the center quickly began to vanish. In Hollywood, as in many urban areas across the U.S., a generalized state of anarchy emerged, setting the framework for neighborhood transformation. One defeat of centralized power began in 1965, when, roughly contemporaneous with the Watts riots, protests broke out against two freeways, leading the state, in the 1980s, to cancel highway projects for the first time in California's history. The county public school system retreated in the 1970s after parents forced the end of mandatory busing to achieve integration. At the federal level, centralized power over the entry of the foreign-born was unwittingly dismantled in 1965 with the creation of a new immigration system. City police leadership assisted the retreat by ordering officers not to inquire about immigration status. Centralized power collapsed in confusion after the Supreme Court took on the challenge to define obscenity in movies. Epitomized by Justice Stewart's I-know-it-when-I-see-it rationale, the court's vague and changing legal standards undermined the practical ability to shut down burgeoning triple X theaters. State and local authorities ended the forced commitment of various populations who were at risk of homelessness. The county closed a so-called drunk farm where city police had deposited adults transported from Hollywood. The county also shut down a regional facility that had confined so-called incorrigible and runaway youth. In Sacramento, a bipartisan consensus released the nonviolent mentally ill from state hospitals. In 1978, a plebiscite, Prop 13, without authorizing substitute revenues, severely limited California's ability to tax real estate. In the 1980s, the electorate voted to downzone the city, weakening the power of government planners to promote and structure the housing supply. In the resulting power vacuum, neighborhood entrepreneurs developed diverse culturally themed areas. The local leaders were as various and unconnected as were the dynamics creating the new urban anarchy. A Central American neighborhood took shape when retail operations agglomerated around what for 100 years had been a high traffic intersection. The owners of new food, dry goods, law, health, and financial services businesses started life in Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East. All used Spanish-language signage that indirectly told unauthorized immigrants that they would be insulated in a neighborhood of similarly vulnerable peers. Many were accommodated in garages and closets, neglected by building inspectors. Pious Jewish communities emerged when the long-stalled highway project made property cheap, advised by co-religionist real estate developers who had made fortunes in los angeles rabbis from east coast centers of orthodoxy bought property and took over declining jewish temples and schools as the mandatory busing of children to public schools was blocked vans began transporting a stream of tuitions from middle-income families to new religious schools a chain of publicly visible drug and sex markets emerged as hustlers exploited idle parts of hollywood's aging infrastructure Movie theaters, in decline since the advent of TV in 1950s, began to exhibit explicit sex films. Motels, also in decline since the 1950s, were rented by drug dealers and prostitutes who brought clients solicited in public places for the private delivery of goods and services. Officially historic neighborhoods arose after residents first organized to resist invasive crime and then used their newly discovered collective power to secure legal protection for their neighborhood's aesthetic appeal. The long highway battle elicited a new hillside federation of canyon neighborhoods geared to fight intrusive development. Prop 13 subsidized NIMBYism by giving residents economic reasons to stay in place and guard an unchanging landscape. Homeless populations were anchored to Hollywood by a string of hospitals, churches, and charitable service centers. They had been created in the early 20th century by a local network of Republicans who were, in the original meaning of the term, progressives. After many years of internal conflict, these institutions embraced the homeless. An upshot of these diverse transformations was the development of bohemian areas in between higher and lower income neighborhoods. In this 50-year transformation of the urban social fabric, government played a historically shifting role. After retreating on multiple levels, centralized public power reemerged to underwrite what the new neighborhood entrepreneurs had begun. New laws recognized historic neighborhoods, gave Hills residents legal strategies to frustrate development projects, and favored arts districts and zoning decisions. At the city, county, state, and federal levels, financial commitments were made to support the education and health of low-income foreign-born. But in the development of the new neighborhood mosaic, it was urban anarchy, a characterization that would be denied by politicians, a daily experience endured by fearful residents, and a concept damned by all reigning political philosophies that was the Protean Crucible.
0: Jack, thank you.
1: Okay. All
0: right. There was a lot in there. So let's start to peel that back and just pick some topics. I I think one of the key points you're making is that um, the role for government in planning the community um, declined and we allowed um, the markets or the anarchy or the organic nature of communities to develop on its own without a central authority. And I'm wondering about, just stepping way back, about the field of urban economics in general. There was a sense, I think, um, in the 1960s, that government could solve most problems. You had public housing, LBJ's public housing programs, et cetera. Um, and then there's, you know, Caro speaks about, you know, where we should put our highways. Um, what's going on in terms of the belief among the intellectual elite and their powers to transform American society through city planning? And is that what's going on? Is there's a sense that um, the city planner is ineffective in his utopian ideals and have, have left it to the market to solve problems
1: i don't think it's come out of uh, a self-conscious decision at top levels what's disappeared is something that's kind of ineffable and hard to in hard to get your hands on but it, it is i think we use the middle third of the 20th century as a kind of touchstone for our thinking about how government interrelates with social developments. And that period, well, really the 50 years from about 1915 to 1965, were very unusual. They were periods where the development of the First World War, the Depression, the Second World War, brought a general deference to centralized power that lasted long, out, about 20, until about 20 years after the Second World War. And that enabled central leadership at all levels to be more confident and be more co- coherent and organized. And when that fell apart, in, in, and I would take 1965 as the marking year, there was a collapse of the general popular deference to central power. And it wasn't as if the high, for example, the highway planners, whether it was Caro uh, criticizing Moses in New York or whether it was the protesters in Beverly Hills fighting Sacramento's highway plans, it wasn't as if the highway planners had lost confidence or lost their, their uh, plans. It was that there was resistance. Now, these resistors had no connection to the people who were doing what's called the Watts Riots, These are opposite parts of society to some extent, and yet there's all of a sudden kind of a challenge to centralized leadership. I I don't know how many of your listeners remember the the ethos, the feel of times in the Watergate era, but that was another period when you could see the collapse of charisma, when the disgrace happened to the center to the presidency. Uh, All sorts of deferences to authorities at lower levels all of a sudden disappeared. So I I can recall I was doing research in Brooklyn in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the 70s, and cases started to come up um, that targeted smoking marijuana in the Merchant Marine Academy. I mean, the sorts of things that nobody would have raised questions about. But all of a sudden, people started to raise questions about what people or institutions that had power had been doing. And so there was a general collapse. The Watergate was a kind of domino collapse that followed the... If you think about it, look at the leaders in the Western world. Uh, Eisenhower was in power, a military leader, until the 60s. De Gaulle lasted until the late 60s. Frankel lasted until the mid-70s. Uh, it took a long time for the popular will, and then you had a sea change, and that's very hard for social science to get its hands on, because social science, its methods like to study things that changed year to year in kind of ordinal fashion, but there are major shifts that start to occur in the mid-60s as this charisma of the center, this general deference that the population had, whether it was in democracies or in fascist or in communist countries, to centralized power, that starts to fade away. Without the support of mass traumas from the first the two world wars and the Depression, we may now be realizing what we're fighting against, all the kind of chaos and conflict and the inability of the center to lead, what is the normal series of events that we find it difficult to appreciate because our touchstone is this unusual period of history that was marked by these mass traumas. So, I, All
0: right. I, I, go ahead. Um, what I was going to say, I was going to break into um, the religious Jewish experience uh, in the Hollywood community, which you touched on. Um, and your uh, your graduate student and mutual friend, Ido Tavari, who has been, he's spoken twice on What Happens Next, um, most recently, about um, HIV in Malawi and the work he did there. But he did his dissertation and he worked with Jack uh, for what became his book, *Summoned*, about um, religious life in Los Angeles. And I think what's interesting in I don't I don't know this Jewish community in uh, Hollywood at all, but it does remind me of other uh, in other places around the country. So I am currently living in Miami Beach and I'm living a couple of blocks away from a very intensive uh, Orthodox Jewish community. And I was asking myself all these sort of questions, like, what are they doing here? And also, why do I want to live right next door to them? And um, what kind of life do they lead that is uh, that touches a Hispanic neighborhood here in Miami? And so I want to ask you this question, Jack. My first one is, 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 it, is this really all about that seeds matter? And what I mean by that is um, Hollywood had a secular Jewish community. And I think that that was an important seed that allowed, um, it must have had some basic institutions that would allow for a uh, Jewish life. And did, and did those initial seeds encourage um, very Orthodox Jews to move into that community? And then, boom, uh, that had a, an immediate um, positive feedback loop. Uh, and then replacing the secular Jewish community in full. What, what, what do you think happened? Why was, what happened here in Hollywood?
1: <laughs> okay. Well, there was a secular Jewish community and it was actually uh, in large part anti-religious. A lot of people were, were close to socialism and uh, not enthusiastic. And the Orthodox had for decades since the 1920s tried to or, or, uh, organize a more pious, a more observant community without success. They started to gain success in the 1970s when a, a number of things were happening. But again, you know, the collapse of the charisma of the center, the central control, is not just the U.S. question. So you have, after the various wars in the Middle East, you've got Jewish populations on the move out of North Africa. You've got uh, the breakdown, uh, the Soviet control of Jews who want to leave. And it's not just that Americans are converting, although that's happened to some extent. It's also that people are coming, Jews are coming out of uh, various places. They first go to Israel, and then they come to the U.S., and they become part of the constituency. A lot of uh, the new synagogues um, had particular ethnic complexions. They might be Iraqi Jews who are populating them. Uh, they're North African jews they're Jews who may be from Latin America who are moving out so it 's a kind of collapse of in a way colonialism and the after effects the population movements that start to so that 's part of the story. Yes, the seeds were there the I like to talk of, think about it as repurposing infrastructure. There was an infrastructure of uh, Jewish population that was somewhat accommodating, although it was also somewhat hostile because the Jewish Federation didn't want to compete with the New Orthodoxy in soliciting money from contributors. So it wasn't always positive, but uh, yet there were institutions to take over. And then there were very wealthy uh, Jews who had been secular much of their lives, some of them Holocaust survivors who had made fortunes in the post-war developments of LA in one area, in retirement homes. As the Jewish community got older, uh, real estate developers got together and started to build facilities, and then they saw the opportunity to manage them as retirement homes, and that became part of the uh, wealth basis that the Orthodoxy sending people from New Jersey and Brooklyn and uh, connecting with these people who became more Uh, observant later in life as often occurs Uh, they start to get donors so it's a mix of these factors but it's also, I would emphasize what's usually not talked about which is events outside the nationalist focus we tend to have Uh, in this case the breakdown of colonialism there are Jews coming from various countries, South Africa even, Argentina Mexico and Hearing about this uh, very uh, attractive new population community, new population center for Orthodox Jews and and uh, providing some of the population base, that plus uh, it was very important because the the private school tuitions that the Jewish schools uh, depend on, that was aided by the uh, resistance, Uh, the whole conflict about mandatory busing to promote school integration. And that coincided in the 1970s with the cheap real estate that was available. Uh, And so new schools got developed, and Jewish schools were only part of the expansion of the private school system. Catholic schools and non-denominational sectarian schools also emerged in this period. But that was also a resistance to Centralized authority in the school board, so I, I would i think the novel part of the story that I have to tell has to has to come out of this breakdown of of faith or a presumed, presumed deference to centralized authority in many different levels and all of it uncoordinated nobody 's in charge nobody's saying the same people aren 't saying let 's end colonialism let 's end mandatory busing let 's stop the state highway authorities from bringing a new highway through our our neighborhood it's it's a very diffuse and so it's because of the diffusion it's very hard to see unless you put together unless you start from the neighborhoods and work out it's very hard to see this
0: um the other point you're trying to make is the strange juxtaposition of such different cultures religions um and political views um and I just I want to focus on one let's compare uh the the transvestite gay um, stores, movie theaters, sex shops, uh, right next to the Orthodox Jewish community. Uh, That would be something that you wouldn't guess would be possible. Um, In Summon, this is Ido Tavari's book, he talks about that the Orthodox Jewish women would walk on side streets to go around uh, the sex shops to uh, to get to the shul and, and back home. How do you think about this strange juxtaposition of Of different cultures um, a desire to be both close but not to mix Um, because I I would have thought that one of the fantastic parts about the uh, disorganized organic anarchy of these neighborhoods is that for someone like me who's much more open to different sort of cultures that it allows me to enjoy this this the beauty of the randomness the beauty of the differences but in other cultures where they're trying to be separate um why would the ones who want to be separate are so close
1: yeah you know it's in a way this is how city neighborhoods have developed in the past if you look at there was a great book the gold coast and the slum that was published in the late 1920s in chicago and it wasn't just the gold coast uh, on lake michigan and the slum some blocks east but it was so it was also little sicily so there's an ethnic low-income neighborhood, and it was the Hobohemia, the homeless, and it was also Tower Town, which was Bohemian, uh, and uh, so and then around historic the historic water tower. So there was, there was a variety of people living next to each other, emerging uh, at the turn of the 20th century from mass immigration, in part because. Even as zoning came into power at about that time in history, nobody was zoning for ethnics or for the cultural fabric. That emerged in a way anarchically, and the people going to one area, one uh, kind of neighborhood, weren't necessarily interested in and had problems Uh, of a sensed vulnerability if they went into other neighborhoods on both sides. I mean, the Gold Coast people are not going to be very comfortable in hobohemia, and the hobos know that they're going to be picked up and pushed out if they show up on the Gold Coast. And similarly, you know, it's not just the Orthodox Jews and this kind of hip, youth-oriented sex and drugs culture uh, nearby that are, wary of each other. It's also that the low-income Central American immigrant knows that they're going to stand out uh, if they are go a few blocks west and go into a higher-income area, other, except if they're there as workers. So this is part of what urban social life has been in the past and, and became uh, at the end of the 20th century. It's, it's not a novel phenomenon, but it's in part because nobody is kind of designing this for complementary and mutual respect and mutual appreciation, except for the young people who come in in the Bohemian neighborhoods and the inter, kind of interstices uh, of some of these neighborhoods. Bohemian areas develop, and they, as kind of culture consumers and tourists, like to go to the ethnic restaurants. They like to look maybe at the historic homes. They appreciate Uh, but they're a very small part of even the population of Bohemian areas. There may be 20% of an area that's mostly working class or poor. Uh, But the people in the other areas are focused on the themes uh, in their lives and in their neighborhoods and wary often, uh, very wary. I mean, people in the hills and the canyons, uh, one of the couples I interviewed, the the wife used to sneak out to go shopping in the low-income Latino neighborhood and didn't want her husband to know about it because he'd be afraid for her, so that sort of thing. This is not on, you know, the wariness is not uncommon. Let me expand on that. So
0: um, just for the benefit of our listeners, um, Jack was just commenting on a book called The Gold Coast and the Slum. It's by Harvey Zorba. Is that how you pronounce it, Jack? yes, yes. Anyway, the book was published in 1929, and it's kind of a neighborhood-by-neighborhood neighborhood analysis of Chicago. And it comes out of the University of Chicago School of Sociology. And um, I read this book, and... Um, I read it because uh, I had an apartment on the corner of Huron, Michigan, and I knew this area very well. And I was just interested in learning about what that neighborhood looked like a, a hundred years before. And what I found uh, to Jack's point was uh, just a couple of blocks away um, on Huron, and let's say Orleans, which is about five or six blocks from where my apartment is, which I'm currently trying to sell. But in that, um, in that neighborhood, what Zarba said is it was 100% Sicilian. Not, not like 99%, like 100. It was 100% Sicilian. Um, and Chicago was a very segregated, but not only just by race, but by, almost by um, where you were from. So there's Czech neighborhoods and Polish neighborhoods and Russian neighborhoods and Swedish neighborhoods, etc. But what's really interesting is that right next to this Sicilian neighborhood on Orleans and Huron. Um, Just across Chicago Avenue was the Moody's Church. And this is an evangelical uh, church that was um, also a school, uh, a university of evangelism. And they would produce students, and these students would go to the Sicilian section, and they would um, preach to the Sicilians to change their ways and become uh, more from, uh, be more uh, religious in their behaviors. And in the book, Zorba describes that they would throw tomatoes at the Moody's um, preachers. Mm. And what I think is interesting about that story is, and going back to my original question to you, Jack, about seeds, because today um, the Moody's church and the Moody's school is still there, and it's probably 25 times larger. It's just an enormous segment of that community. But all the Sicilians are gone, okay? There's, not, there's probably nobody left. And it's been replaced by, um, you know, my, my niece lives there. I mean, it's like a very up-and-coming, yuppie community uh, in, in the, on those blocks. And I'm just trying to understand how the Chicago School of Sociology thinks about uh, the development of of the importance of the seed of the Sicilians in the movies, that the movies are still left but the Sicilians are gone, and how those neighborhoods change with time given the economics and opportunities.
1: Right. Okay. So let me let me take your seed uh, label and turn it into path dependency. Which is the way a lot of social research. Yeah, yeah, that's right. About things. So, and and uh, I thought we might talk about one of the issues that came up in your conversation with Ed Glazer about uh, post-COVID, what's happening to the to the city? Will the city come back, and how it will come back? And I thought of uh, a good path dependency example would be where the new studio development is happening now. There's massive new development of new production facilities and office office facilities related to entertainment production in L.A. now. Now, when the movie industry was created, it was really centered in Hollywood between 19, 1907 and 1915, and it was all in the center of Hollywood. There was a particular intersection that was famous for having lots of different studios around. By the late 20s, by the 1920s, movie studios had made enough financial progress, sound was coming in, they had to expand. Where did they expand? They didn't expand in place. They went 10 miles out to Burbank, to Culver City. That's interesting. Okay. Uh, Warner's and Universal went to Burbank. Culver City was created to host MGM. MGM was a combination of Metro and Goldwyn that were separate entities. 20th Century Fox was uh, also a combination. They went to what became Century City near south of Beverly Hills. Now you have 100 years later, the 2020s, uh, starting about 5, 10 years ago, major expansion of the studios. Where is it happening It's happening not another 10 miles out, but it's happening based on the path that the studios took in the 1920s, and it's happening all around the nodes that were then established. So the seeds, as you you say, or the path dependencies or the constraints on further movement out, they're not going another 10 miles out. They're not going from Burbank way up to the Northeast Valley. Warner's has the biggest studio expansion in the country going on now A Frank Gehry Design Buildings, and it's in Burbank. Uh, where MGM was in Central City, uh, in Culver City, there's Sony, Amazon, uh, HBO, uh, Apple are all developing studio-related facilities. Uh, In Hollywood, right near the original center of all the studios, Netflix and Viacom and uh, new studios are being developed. So over time, the path dependencies are getting stronger. And what that means for post-COVID is even as, as Ed Glazer pointed out, uh, you can track rentals, you can track vacancies in office space, and there are some indicators of people not signing up for the same square footage or signing up at lower prices or less profitable businesses coming in where more profitable were. There's that trend, but there's also this divergent trend of path dependencies being stronger than ever. So the cities will come back explosively. I think the 2020s is going to be an explosive growth period, kind of like the 1920s was, where L.A.'s population more than doubled. Uh, and a lot of what COVID meant was a lot of construction projects could really move quickly because there was no traffic holding things up and other kinds of uh, openings occur. And there's a tremendous amount that's coming on, will be coming online very shortly. When these new buildings come online, which are residential as well as production facilities, retail will become very, uh, very dynamic around them. Uh, population densities will increase, but they'll increase around the nodes that were established by the 1920s. They're not going to be spread out further out. And there's a kind of dialectic of sprawl that by having created housing, a uh, more equal housing uh, series of possibilities in the region about 10 to 20 miles out, now to locate a new production facility or office building on this bigger circle, on any parts of the bigger circle, you're requiring your employees to commute potentially a much further distance from another end of that circle. Uh, And so it it becomes sprawl kind of feeds and gives a dynamic that gives more economic appeal to development at the center. So there are divergent kinds of Uh, movements in process here the high-tech facilitating work from home but also the path dependencies of the cities getting stronger over time
0: I'm just wondering if if that's consistent with our um, organic nature of the of the change let me give you an example um, from Philadelphia for a second Um, so I attended the University of Pennsylvania and it's got a campus um, and they want to expand. And there's also this sense that there's um, like the science departments wants to work with pharmaceutical labs and in, in a in, in these sort of joint ventures, thinking like, like Silicon Valley is with Stanford. And so Penn wants to expand, but it's in the middle of Philadelphia. So like what can they do? And there's like two options. Uh, one is is that they can go um, towards the river and where it's kind of industrial right now and rezone it to allow for Penn to go in one direction and then also work with um, industrial labs. And then it can also go um, towards the river, towards Center City, and expand there as well. So I, the reason why I mention this, it seems like there's a two-prong issue. One is you, you're, you're caught by your path dependency because the view of Penn's campuses is where it is. Okay, we're not moving the campus. And next question is, is how, what, where is vacant land? Where can we rezone? What can we do to, um, to deal with our future growth? And I, I think that's kind of the story you're telling me also in, in Hollywood. Um, what's the cheapest land where I can expand big uh, that's close enough to my existing spot?
1: Yeah, that's the calculation. I, I think what's happened since the 1920s is that the region has been built out. So you've got upper middle cl- income homes 20 miles out in all directions, in the South Bay, up to Woodland Hills, and the northwest. And uh, there's not cheap land even further out. So I, I think that's been missing from a lot of the thinking about the quote return to the city. What what's happened is that. The land further out is no longer so, so much cheaper than land closer in. So the development does have on expen- it does happen on expensive land. Uh, the Culver City developments of uh, HBO and Sony and uh, uh, Apple and so forth uh, are happening in an area that's already the west side of LA, which is a relatively affluent area. They're buying up the land paying the higher prices than they would have paid decades ago, but if they're going to go further out, they're also going to pay higher, much higher prices than they would have paid decades ago. Burbank, for example, is not the kind of um, low-profit farming area that it was when Warners and Universal first moved out there, and areas further out are already subdivided, and uh putting together lots to make enough space is a a challenge further out as well as it is uh, further. in. There's another factor that that goes on here that I, I think is interesting to talk about, and that's the sludge factor, that market forces face social psychological barriers in multiple ways before development takes off. And one is that, um, towards the center of cities you've got more corporate ownership of land as you go out to the residential neighborhoods you've got more family ownership of lands that are of lots that are rented for business and that are rented for apartment houses that's a kind of family sludge in the sense that you often have to wait for the elderly parents to die and the kids to fight over and be unable to reach an agreement about how to manage this property before you get a sale back into the market. Towards the central city, you've got more corporate ownership, and it's easy, easier, quicker to put together, uh, moving towards the highest and best use of the land. So that's a historical process that's in course now in, in many cities. It's clearly in L.A. Uh, and there are other sludge factors that are kind of going to be processed through to move development more quickly towards towards the center, but that's one that affects the turnover of use of land uh, that isn't taken into account, I think, enough. Uh,
0: uh, we had, uh, what Jack is referencing is an Ed Glazer uh, discussion on what happens next a few weeks ago. Um, and I wanted to go t- to something Ed had to say about uh, Southern California specifically. Um, What he did was he complained about sort of like this organic um, anti-zoning, anti-new building uh, approach that was uh, in our zoning process, which has prevented um, large-scale developments in California, and that has resulted in a huge increase in real estate prices, um, which makes both business expensive and living there expensive, Um, and there's this huge wealth uh, given to the older generation at the expense of the young. And young people have to make the following decision. Should they live in very cramped space in California, or should they move uh, to a state with less restrictive zoning like Texas or Nevada or Arizona where they can get a large piece of property for very little and you know, they'll deal with the job uh, concerns there later. How do you think about what Ed had to say about zoning as it relates to this anarchic organic process of city development?
1: When uh, in, in 1986 in particular in the city of all LA, they had a downzoning uh, proposition that local politicians promoted and that won overwhelmingly. And that made it harder to uh, build density. It kind of blocked a lot of more dense development. And yes, that had a, a major effect on increasing uh, land prices. And increasing the price for buying or renting, and what—that's another part of the sludge factor because it takes—it's taken 25 to 30 years for the general population to realize the negative consequences. And now you're starting to see a turnaround. About five years ago, the city uh, passed another measure that gave zoning of officials a little more power to allow more dense development and. Uh, and that is happening. That is starting to happen. It's not, uh, and there will be an impact on rental prices in the next five, ten years. That'll be significant, but it's a it's a minor shift. But it takes a long time for the public to realize the negative effects uh, of this downzoning and the undemocratic and tend to become discontent with the undemocratic nature of the overall process where if you really do the math and work it out it's about 1% of the population in a very republican way in the in the classic terms of it the more educated affluent people who are controlling the land use decisions for the vast majority of people who don't live in the city when the votes are, uh, occur but those votes set up a zoning structure that lasts for 25, 30 years until it's revised when new people come in and they don't have any vote in affecting things. So there's a kind of anti-democratic and real estate inflating effect of this kind of attack on giving power to central planners to maximize development. Now that started to erode and it's possible there'll be votes on major new initiatives that will uh, allow much more density to develop. So I I think of that as another even longer-term sludge factor before the public gets aware of the repercussions. And then there's also a sludge factor before developers get aware and get to be believers in the new development uh, possibilities because it's been five, ten years since the state and the city have loosened a little bit the opportunity for dense development. And some of the projects that are now permitted that weren't before are only now coming online. And developers aren't really sitting in one room talking to each other. It takes them in their dispersed locations, some of them are in Canada, well, some of them are in Texas, to figure out that they can have faith that their projects, more dense projects, will get through. So that that takes time to work out. Time is the big missing kind of consideration and a lot of our urban social thinking I, I believe
0: well, let me try a different uh, aspect to this strange juxtaposition of different communities and I, I want to uh, give an example like Crown Heights um, where you have an Orthodox Jewish community next to an African American community and they really don't get along and there was an incident where um, a very religious man uh, was trying to go to visit the Lubavitch, uh event and ended up running over and killing an African-American child, and that resulted in rioting and uh, a lot of anger um, between the African-American and uh, Orthodox Jewish communities. And when you have such radical differences in uh, religious, political, sociological, wealth differences, oftentimes this can result in um, a fight. How do you think about um, the idea of can't everyone just get along when they're just so different? Um, How do we, you know, and some level we're so excited and about the opportunity of of this mixed neighborhood mixed residential area of different cultures but sometimes that results in violence how do you think about the good and the bad associated with putting different communities together
1: hmm. well you know the, the communities. I don't know that anybody's putting them together they're, they're getting put together as dispersed people are making decisions over time and uh, Obviously, you want to avoid conflicts if you can. I, but I, I think that the, you know, the looming reality that has not yet come to surface is a fuller appreciation of just how overwhelmingly uh, the urban populations in the New York and the L.A. area and increasingly in other parts of the country are dominated by foreign-born cultures. That is to say, if you look at households in New York and L.A., you'll find that almost two-thirds of the households are shaped, people are living in everyday cultures in their homes and in their neighborhoods that are shaped by people who were born in another country. In L.A., it happens to be more Mexican and Latin America. It's more diverse in New York. But our our discussions tend to be about black-white, And that's a very and that for good historical reasons there are a lot of very important moral issues to attend to, but the demographic realities at some point there'll be another sea change when this this will flip, and the new discussions will be about the foreign born uh, against. I don't know if this is going to be a hostile or antagonistic matter, but that will become more and more appreciated in the media. The numbers are so overwhelming. Uh, There's such overwhelming majorities of foreign-born households in areas that are still represented by U.S.-born people who have been in the country for centuries or decades, uh, many generations. And that's not – so there's an under – this kind of undemocratic nature of our whole public discourse, uh, which for – perhaps defensible moral reasons emphasizes black white conflicts but is really more about this the US as an immigrant nation again and that shift in in discussion and and themes in the popular media uh is likely to come in a kind of sea change not far off in the future
0: all right um that's going to end our discussion here with Jack, and and we're going to go with something completely different, which is a discussion with Jim Holmes um, about uh, China and Taiwan. Uh, Jim is the J.C. Wiley Chair of Maritime Strategy at the Naval War College. Um, He has written extensively on uh, South China Sea and U.S. Naval Strategy. So, uh, Jim, why don't you kick off your discussion
2: about, uh, about China and Taiwan? Hi, Larry. Great to talk to you again. We did this about the, this time last year. Uh, first of all, let me start by noting that nothing is inevitable in world affairs, and, and nor is a Chinese uh, attack on Taiwan. In fact, uh, never say never, never say always is a golden rule for living. But I do think a Chinese attack on Taiwan is more likely than the common wisdom on Asia-Pacific affairs allows. It's a good deal less far-fetched than the assassination of an archduke in uh, Sarajevo plunging Europe into the cauldron of World War in 1914, or for that matter, a 19 hijacker setting loose t- 20 years of uh, global war on terror on 9-11, and yet those events happened. So could a cross-straight uh, Chinese offensive. So it's up to Taiwan and its friends, including ourselves, to shape the likelihood of, a, of an attack and deter Beijing. Now... And geopolitical and geoeconomic interests are a big part of the reason why China might strike. As they gaze eastward from the mainland, Chinese communist leaders and ordinary Chinese alike behold the first island chain, which runs from Japan, southward through Taiwan, through the Philippine and Indonesian archipelagos, and around to Singapore. They understand that the the island chain encloses China's entire coastline, that its occupants are allies or friends of the United States, and that some of them, like Japan, are well-armed. In their eyes, this merger of geography, alliances, and armaments raises a barrier to Chinese military and commercial access to the Western Pacific and the wider world. They find China's surroundings stifling. And they're not wrong to interpret their surroundings this way. Should hostile armed forces close the straits whereby uh, Chinese naval and mercantile fleets access the Pacific high seas, uh, General Secretary Xi Jinping's Chinese dream, his program for national rejuvenation, would be in grave peril. This is why Chinese strategists commonly refer to the first island chain as a metal chain, a barricade blocking China's destiny on the high seas. Breaking this chain is imperative, and Taiwan is the best place to cause a fracture. Resting the island from its inhabitants would bring a wealth of strategic opportunities for China. It would emplace the People's Liberation Army, or PLA, at the island chain's midpoint granting shipping and aircraft-ready access to the Pacific. It would let the PLA overshadow the Luzon Strait, the best channel for submarines to pass between the South China Sea and the Pacific undetected. It would let China turn to Japan's southern flank, applying pressure on this perennial rival, and on and on. National interests constitute a compelling reason for Beijing to rank Taiwan atop its list of priorities, as indeed they do. And China's leadership may be in a hurry to make good on this project. Last March, Admiral Phil Davidson, the outgoing commander of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command in Honolulu, made headlines by forecasting that China may strike within the next six years. Admiral Davidson was oblique about his reasoning. Why six years, and why not five or ten? But nonetheless, the Davidson window for the the timing of a Chinese assault has become a fixture in debates among China watchers. While Xi Jinping divulges little about timing, he makes no secret of his goals. He has vowed publicly, vehemently, and often to regain every inch of ground once ruled by imperial China until the fall of the Qing Dynasty in 1911. He has connected this effort to China's dream and made himself accountable to the Chinese people for making their dream come true. Yet making well-defined promises is a dangerous thing for autocrats like Xi. It lets them portray themselves as strong and resolute and possessed of a grand vision. The danger is that if they fail to deliver on their promises, they will cast themselves as weak and irresolute in the eyes of the people. The Chinese people would not take kindly to having their passion for making China great again ignited and then doused. Chinese communist rule might even fall if they blame Xi for failing to deliver Taiwan after promising to. In other words, she, whether deliberately or not, has, de- has deployed a version of what the Harvard economist uh, Thomas Schelling called the commitment tactic in negotiations, and not especially wisely. Sometimes a negotiator, say a union leader, will publicly state a non-negotiable position at the, at-, at the outset of talks. Think about what that does. It connects the negotiator's personal prestige to obtaining his or her demands. No one can climb down from such a promise for fear of losing face. By sticking his good name on bringing home the goods in full, the, the negotiator deliberately forfeits the freedom to compromise, and in so doing, amplifies his bargaining power. But his constituents will be incensed if he does give way, and he will pay a price. Similarly, Xi Jinping has given up the option of compromising on Taiwan. He may have built up his bargaining power with Taiwan and its protectors, but he has tainted himself into a corner with his constituents. And again, I would say this is an unforced error. Now he must stand and deliver. But think about it. Xi is 68. Like all of us, he is on the clock. His patience with Taiwan has limits for that basic human reason, if nothing else. But does this interplay among interests, ideas about destiny, and leadership spell war? It's often noted that Chinese statecraft, dating to the age of Sun Tzu two millennia ago, puts the accent on winning without fighting. And this is true. And in fact, no sane leader or government in China or anywhere else relishes the dangerous hardships and costs of warfare. Even conquerors love peace. It lets them get what they want without undue hazard. The trouble for Xi is that the Taiwan part of China's dream may not be attainable except through war. Patience, or persuasion, rather, is less and less an option for Beijing. The social and cultural bonds connecting the island with the mainland loosen by the day. Only about a tenth of Taiwan now, Taiwanese now define themselves as Chinese, and there's little chance of that trend reversing itself. Sentiment favoring a cross-strait union is on the wane. Plus, Taiwan and Taiwanese watch what happens in places like Hong Kong, Xinjiang, and Tibet they know a similar grim fate awaits them should they submit to mainland rule so it's hard to, it's hard to imagine the taiwanese people or their other or people or their leaders rather yielding to what amounts to a demand for national self-destruction their goal too their goal of de facto independence is non-negotiable so if china wants the island it will have to take it by force and in the end that means mounting a cross-strait amphibious invasion Otherwise, it will not possess the contested ground. The metal chain will remain intact, athwart China's aspirations. So where does this leave us? In an uncomfortable position. China will not be counted to forever forswearing control of Taiwan. It commands too much value for China, both in uh, tangible military and economic terms and as a focal point for China's sense of itself and its destiny. But China can be deterred day by day. Think about it. For Xi Jinping, as I've said, failing to act would be bad. Acting and losing in the Taiwan Strait would be far worse. He might lo- lose his rule or even his life. That knowledge is our advantage. It's up to Taiwan and its friends to figure out how to implant doubt and dread in Xi's mind, making clear that we have both the capabilities to, not- to deny China what it wants and the resolve to use them. If she wakes up every morning and says to himself, this is not the day, then we will have deterred him for that day. We will post- postpone military action. If we can string together enough days like that, who knows? Good things may happen in the Far East. And that's probably about the best we can do under prevailing circumstances. This endeavor will be neither quick nor easy nor danger-free. Let's keep Xi and his comrades up nights, worrying that we will make their Chinese dream a nightmare. If we do, we may stay their hand. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. That was fantastic.
0: Um, I just uh, I want to start with um, cheap and effective ways of defending Taiwan. You had an article that was published a few weeks ago, which I assigned to the readers, about um, using of, of mines to protect against amphibious uh, attack, and that these mines can be placed within 24 hours. Um, Could you comment a little bit about the effectiveness of these mines, why it would, be a, why it would work as a defense mechanism and uh, its general efficacy?
2: Yeah, mines. Are, I mean, mines have always been one of the, the most difficult. Probably, in fact, anything underwater remains uh, re- remains a very difficult uh, threat. Simply because of the nature of water itself, which, which is why we worry so much about submarines, mines, torpedoes, all those all those sorts of things that can can remain obscure from our, from our sensors and, and obviously from our eyeballs. But yeah, mines have been. I mean, mines have been really, I think, sort of sensitive. yeah. I guess I guess you can think about all the way back to the Battle of Mobile Bay during the Civil War, but especially in the late 19th and early into the 20th century, they've been they've been a real problem for, uh, for for navies. In fact, I in fact I was up in the Gulf in uh, 1991, and uh, I can I can remember seeing the float, float down the side of the ship and thank, thank heavens we didn't hit any, but uh, a couple of ships were not uh, so, so uh, were not so fortunate. So, it's it's a perennial problem, and it's something that we're always trying to that we're always trying to to make work. But at the same time, if if, it's, if this is a hard problem for ourselves, it's also a hard problem for China. For China, which was which is a rather it's sort of a late comer to uh, under underwater operations, and it's a, and, and therefore it it has a hard time with anti-submarine warfare, with with mine sweeping, and so forth. So that so that I mean that's an opportunity for the United States for the United States and its allies right there just just to to be able to resort to this sort of cheap and proven uh, mode of warfare. Combine that with geography. I, I mentioned the first island chain uh, quite a bit. I mean, uh, those are nar- those are narrow seas that uh, that penetrate through the island chain, and they're, they're great uh, the great uh, places for uh, for, for minefields. You now have the U.S. You now have the United States Air Force uh, practically dropping minefields from bombers. I mean, the, there's just there's just a lot going on in this uh, uh, in, the, in this area. And so again, so combining geography with uh, with uh, new and old technology uh, can provide that sort of strategic advantage.
0: Um, I, I'm going to go through a couple historical um, island takings uh, as as a way of thinking about um, Taiwan. And I, the three ones, I'm going to do three different questions, but just to kind of get you ready. Uh, I'm going to talk about Midway, I'm going to talk about Crete, and I'm going to talk about Okinawa. And I'm going to start with um, Midway first. So when we broke the Japanese code and figured out the Japanese were going to uh, invade Midway, um, one of the first things that the United States did was it um, improved the um, defense of the island uh, on the island itself. Um, they beefed up uh, the airport. They beefed up um, other areas around the island to protect against invasion. Um, and I think that's a very cheap and effective means of preventing an amphibious attack. If you were going to recommend um, defending Taiwan, how would you do it? Would you recommend having U.S. ground troops, um, U.S. Um, Air Force having a base there, um, or how would you recommend that Taiwan think about um, from the land itself, uh, from the island itself, protecting itself against potential amphibious attack away from mines?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a great question, it, uh, and it's uh, and it's it's one that uh, in the think tank world, people have been thinking about it for quite some time. In fact, it was I think it's about twenty years ago. A team at Rand, the Rand Corporation, they actually did, they did a historical comparison. They they basically mapped out the, the potential landing bay, uh, beaches on Taiwan, and then they overlaid that over the over the beaches at Normandy, and it's almost the same size theater, and it's a, it's a, it's just about as difficult.
1: So I mean,
2: so so Taiwan has so. so uh, the first thing Taiwan needs to do is think of, uh, about how to use the island's geography, the island itself, and the surrounding maritime geography as uh, uh, as strategic assets, as operational assets. The uh, one of my favorite passages uh, comes from a uh, from a theorist we don't uh, study all. We don't, we don't think about too much these days. Uh, Bismarck the elder, well, the, the founding basically the founder the, the, the on the military side, the founder of uh, of Imperial Germany in the 1870s. He may, he maintained that essentially possession is nine tenths of the law uh in in strategy what he means by this is that if you already hold hold the ground if you already hold what somebody else is trying to take you have advantages just by just by possession tactical defense is the strongest form of warfare and that means in in the case of taiwan taiwan already already holds that that ground and china has to come across 90 90 plus uh, miles of water in order to take it and and of course and of course the strait and of course the strait is narrow uh, it's susceptible to again, mine warfare, submarines, but uh, but also uh, surface patrol craft armed with missiles. A lot of a lot of the, a lot of these small and cheap capabilities could could flood, basically flood the zone and give the give the People's Liberation Army and Navy a very difficult time uh, coming coming across the Taiwan Strait in force. So 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 there's a, there's a lot there. I think that the the other aspect to this, especially for the PLA, or excuse me, especially for the Taiwan Air Force and the Taiwan Navy, is they they really need a, a, basically a culture change. I guess I guess you might say. The, uh, for a long time, for a long time during the Cold War, and really into the 1970s when we revoked our uh, recognition uh, for, for Taiwan, I mean the the, the uh, culture is they basically grown up. Well, they were basically, they were almost like clients of the United States Armed Forces, and they they, they, seemed, they seemed to uh, soak up that, uh, sort of soak up the assumptions that we have in the United States Navy and the, in the United States Air Force, namely that we are going to fight a big battle and rule the sky or rule the sea. Taiwan could get away with that for a long time because the PLA, PLA remained large but sort of uh, backward and ponderous and not, and not very good. And Taiwan could uh, convince itself that by being technologically and, and, and in the human sense superior to, to, uh, to the the mainland's armed forces that it could hope to prevail in a battle for maritime command or aerial command. That's a and, that, and that's a, it that's an attitude that I think has long outlived its usefulness as, as the PLA becomes a serious a serious competitor. And I think that and I think that it's uh, and I think the Taiwanese the Taiwanese really need to give up on these assumptions and think more like guerrillas. <laughs> I mean, you can even then invest, uh, China, investigate China's past. Back during back the days of Mao Zedong, I mean, think, I think about how uh, how, the, how the Red Army under Mao overcame the nationalists and ultimately the Imperial uh, Japanese as well. Even though it was the weaker party, Taiwan is now the weaker party, and I think it needs to to uh, to, to embrace that assumption and and think about how to do things. Uh, in, a, in a different way. If it does that, and, if, and I think if it goes to, to uh, multitudes of all the, these small cheap capabilities, I think, it, I think it has a chance of, uh, of, of deterring China and frustrating China's uh, aims if, uh, if China does use force. So Taiwan's not without options.
0: Um, let me try uh, the Battle of Crete for a second as another example. So John Keegan, the very famous military historian, wrote yep. a book entitled uh, Intelligence and War, the Value and Limitations. And in this book, there's a chapter on the Battle of Crete. And the, the point that Keegan was making was even with perfect information, you can still lose. But I, I think the Battle of Crete cool. um, is, is interesting in its own right from a strategic standpoint. So here's the deal. Um, we've bro- We've broken the German code. And we find out that the Germans are planning to invade um, Crete at a very specific time. And we know exactly what they're going to do. Um, they're going to uh, drop guys out of parachutes, um, where the target is the Iraqian, which is the capital city's um, airport. And they're going to take the airport. And once they take the airport, they're going to fly in uh, and land thousands of troops and take the island. The individual representing the Allies is a Kiwi commander, and the Kiwi commander is instructed uh, by the Allied forces to defend at all costs the airport, to give up uh, on the sea as a concern of its attack. And they're also – they say exactly where the parachutists are going to be landing. So they take out – They put the machine gun guys right where the parachute guys could come in, but they really don't add a lot of troops to the airport because the Kiwi commander is still very concerned about an amphibious attack. And they land, and there's a tremendous loss of life for the parachutists, Um, but um, enough get through. They're able to take the airport. Um, The Germans are able to land thousands of troops, and Crete is lost. The reason I bring up this as an aside, when Hitler hears about the percentage of parachutists that were killed, he then thinks that he's never going to do this approach in battle again, not knowing that we had broken the code where they were going to land. And he also thought that would make it very prohibitively expensive in the, in the battle of um, when we landed at Normandy for fear that the parachutists would get killed just like the Germans, though the Germans didn't know where we were going to land. Um, and the reason I bring up the story with you, Jim is How important is the defense of the airports um, to landing Chinese troops to do a Battle of the Crete attack on Taiwan? Do you think that in lieu of an amphibious attack, they could do something more from the air to land troops?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's. A, I would say it's a serious concern. I, I'm not actually an air an air power a specialist, so I, so, I, but I, it's just in general terms. I mean, that's. I mean, the airports are obviously important for a lot of a lot of reasons, especially especially for the Taiwan Air Force, which unwisely I think has has continued to pour lots of resources into into F sixteen fighters and whatnot. Uh, you know, sort of high. Uh, sort of high high cost high cost platforms that they could they could use these resources for other stuff and I think they would be well off doing it. but 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 you get the I mean but sort of for de- defensive reasons that's important they pra- every year they practice uh, landing landing fighter aircraft on uh, on highways and so forth they, just a, just a, just as a contingency in case they do load, lose up those facilities to a Chinese attack which they might but again it, so just like you say that's these are also valuable facilities to to the Chinese I don't think, you know I I have a hard time seeing them primarily, I mean, think, think about the think about the size of Taiwan. The population of Taiwan is about 23, 24 million people. It's 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 really hard to imagine them being able to airlift or to, to do a sort of a paratroop operation uh, uh, along the lines of Creed against the target that's uh, against the target that size. This is a large, rugged island, is well suited to conducting an insurgency. As, uh, as, as the island has seen in the past, I, it, it's going to take a lot of manpower for the PLA to get across the, the Taiwan Strait. I'm sure there will be an air component, but, uh, but but the fact is that manpower and especially military resources, heavy military resources, are going to come by sea, and, and therefore, and therefore, I think the, the maritime aspect is is probably still the key one.
0: Winning without a fight—that's strategy, strategy number one. And I'm thinking about it in the context of what about a little fight? You know, Taiwan, um, like the like England, um, you can it needs food. Um, it needs it's an export country. It needs access to the sea. Um, could the Chinese, um, you know, set up a barricade around which they would prevent uh, vessels coming in and out? Could they force uh a a long dated, um, problem where they couldn't be, they couldn't feed their people. What do you, could they also just blow up a bunch of, um, their industries, uh, in a, in a low cost aerial attack, um, that would make it prohibitive to get the Taiwanese to the negotiating table. What, um, when, when they, I've heard that when they do the war games, China wins just about every time. What, it, what are these weaknesses that the Taiwan has that um, prevents or allows China with a
2: low cost
0: to really force uh, the Taiwanese bargaining table to give up uh, everything?
2: Okay, let me tell you. Let me take the second part first, and then come back to the to the, to the question that you opened. What I, I mean, I think you're alluding to a uh, Taiwanese willpower. I was I was suggesting I think I think it's actually pretty good. It's, I mean, that's we know that the, the, when you estimate a contender's strength, it's it's a compound of material capabilities, military power, economics, and all that kind of stuff. But all but then, but then obviously the willpower to actually use those things to get your way. In this case, uh, since so Taiwan uh, d- uh, preserving its own uh, de facto independence and, and national survival, so. I mean, it's a, I actually think it's pretty good. It's there are always they're always doing polls in Taiwan to try to figure out to figure out uh, to figure out exactly how hard the population would be prepared to fight. I think it's actually gotten better over the years as as the as the Taiwanese define themselves less and less as Chinese and more and more as some, as, as their own nation. So I think that's a, so I think that's that's actually a good thing. Uh, so, I mean, that's, so I actually think the cultural component, the willpower component, is, is probably is probably the key. I think they can actually, I think they can actually, they they could actually sustain a fair amount of damage before they before they would be forced to acquiesce. And that that leads me to to what what I would say to your first question, which I think I think it comes down to speed. China wants to win fast. In fact, I think China needs to win fast uh, in the, in the Taiwan Strait so that so that they can actually uh, conquer that island. Uh, if it decides to mount an invasion to conquer the island before the United States and its and its allies can rally to Taiwan's defense, so that's a, and if you're talking about if you're talking about uh, like you said, economic attacks and blockade or whatnot, I mean these are slow. These are slow-moving strategies, and they would they would give the United States. And its allies, and its allies, and Taiwan, uh, that that time that they need to, that they need to rally to rally to Taiwan's defense and and, and, get, and go in and, and go in and mount enough force to reverse aggression. So, so I think they, I think it uh, I think Chi- Taiwan or excuse me China rather will not will not go with with a really slow moving uh, uh, strategy like a blockade as a standalone thing. Obviously, if they're going to mount an attack, they're going to try to cordon off the island and do, and do damage to it. But I don't think they would do these things as as the centerpiece of their strategy just be, just because that. fact. Time.
0: There was an article in the Wall Street Journal of all places, um, a front page story this week about um, both Taiwan's will to fight and their preparation. And the article specifically was asking the question, um, will um, the young men of Taiwan, will they fight and are they prepared to fight in any meaningful way? And, you know, there's a sense of comparison versus the Israelis with their reserve army, where yep. you know, they go to work every month uh, or one month a year. They're, they're out there uh, preparing, thinking about it, fully engaged, and then treating it as an existential threat. Um, obviously, if the Israelis are taken over by, I don't know, you know, the Syrians or something, um, it's, end, it's end of days. It's end of the world. I mean, they're yep. going to get killed. So versus the Taiwanese... They're going to get taken over by their fellow man, the fellow Chinese. Uh, yeah, I mean, Hong Kong lost, but you know they're still alive. They didn't massacre them. Um, and I now I have to die, um, is the alternative. How do you think about Taiwan's decision not to build reserves, not to ingrain the military ethic uh, ethic among their young people? Is it too late? Can they turn that around? Is that will that have high dividends? Or should they spend their resources more on planes and mines and submarines and the Well,
2: I'm mean, not entirely there's a choice between ingraining uh, in the military ethos within Taiwan and, uh, and investing in other things. But, uh, but I mean, you're right to call to call attention to this. I mean, it, I, I suggested I think I think actually Taiwan's on the right to, on the right track. In terms of national willpower, but, yeah, I saw that Wall Street Journal piece. It appeared in the, in the Navy's uh, daily news clippings this weekend. And, uh, and, I, and I, think that, I think that is a serious problem if they're not actually uh, creating sizable, sizable, and well-trained reserves. And there were was, was some, some uh, suggestions that they basically just use recruits to do odd jobs. I, if, if
1: memory serves, I'm
2: a little bit out of touch with this, but I think, I think national service in Taiwan is only nine months now. Man, I mean, can you really make a, a, sailor, a, a soldier, a sailor, or any, anything else, in nine months, and then turn that person back to civilian? I mean, I, I think that is a, sort of a worrisome uh, fact. If if indeed I'm right about that, and I think I am, so I think I think we are talking about a cultural a cultural change that needs to happen in Taiwan. Yeah, President Tsai has been uh, very good on weapons programs and whatnot, and, and, but uh, but you don't get the sense that she's devoted a whole lot of attention to that aspect. That sort of lesser known aspect of military military preparedness. And I, and, and I don't want to paint too rosy a picture on Taiwan. I mean, I, I, my sense is that the trends are, are going are going okay in this sense. But at the same time, if you look at if you look at uh, what Taiwan Taiwan spends on defense, it's basically on a peacetime footing. Sure they spend about two percent of GDP uh, on, on the military, which is yeah, I mean, which is okay. I mean, that's the the NATO standard in Europe. But at the same time, I mean, I mean, Taiwan stands on death ground to uh, to use a census a census term for it. it I mean, as you said, it faces national and national ruin. And it is, but but yet it's not but yet it's not spending like it actually takes that very seriously, which suggests that they might still be dependent on the United States. They simply assume, they simply assume that we'll come to the rescue. And I, I think that's I think that's an assumption that uh, that has outlived its usefulness because. I said China wants to win to, to win fast. The United States wants to slow things down so that they can actually get to the scene of battle. But so, but uh, it, it would be good to see Taiwan take a bigger, a bigger share in its own defense. Also, I would watch Japan as well. Japan's actually moving pretty fast by Japanese standards. So I started to talk about actually defending Taiwan, that being an important thing. Japan's talking about doubling its own defense budget. So there's there's also other other factors going on there, out there as well. But, yeah, the culture does need to change, I would, I would say. Let's
0: expand on that Japanese angle, because uh, I think it's critical. I mean, uh, whether or not, um, right, well, actually, before I go to Japan, let's go uh, to the United States and def- uh, us defending Taiwan and the signals we're trying to send. Um, President Biden was recently interviewed um, by the press, and they the press, uh, I forgot who the guy's name, who interviewed him, asked him a question more than once um, what is the u s policy in defending japan and Biden said unequivocally the united states uh, has op- currently has obligations and will do everything in its power to defend taiwan um, and the journalist said actually um, that really isn't true. And he said, no, no, it is true. And then hours later, um, the administration's press secretary clarified the position back to the current position, which was uh, the ambiguity for Taiwan, uh, unclear of whether or not the U.S. would defend Taiwan. Um, What are your thoughts on I'll call it the incredibly ambiguous U.S. policy towards defending Taiwan, whether we will or we won't. How is that perceived in China? How will that be perceived in Taiwan? How will that be perceived in Japan or the world? Um, and you know, does it matter?
2: Well, I think it does matter. I mean, I think we're sort of at a nexus where we're trying, having to rethink old assumptions. I, I mean, you're alluding to yeah, President Biden. I was actually excited when he did that, but but then I, but then I also expected the uh, the uh, the people in Washington to start walking it back, just as they did actually uh, one previous time in August, right after it was about the time of the, of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. So everybody wondered whether the United States could be uh, relied on, relied upon to keep its uh, promises in international politics. So it's and, and so it came up in that context as well. And the same thing happened back then. The uh, the policy of strategic ambiguity. It the basic idea behind it is we're trying to deter both our ally, or our friend in this case, our informal ally Taiwan, and also China. We're trying to we want to deter Taiwan from declaring independence, something that China has repeatedly stated as a red line for war. And in fact, yeah, I wrote it into Chinese law back in 2005. And we also want to obviously deter China, China from attacking Taiwan and trying to settle things by force. So, it's, but the, I mean, I, th- I think that made sense as long as the Chinese threat was pretty remote. As but that's really not that's really not reality anymore. Over the last quarter century or thereabouts, uh, the PLA has made itself into a serious fighting force and uh, one that we have to take seriously. And I think that uh, warrants rethinking strategic ambiguity. I, I I never get a lot of times when people ask this question and they, they seem to be insinuating that they that they want to stick with an, an strategic ambiguity. I always I always ask. Well, I mean, think think about theories of alliance building and, and preservation. Do you ever do you ever want to issue a a a, a binding or a non-binding promise to, to to defend somebody? Do you do you really want to be ambiguous about say threatening? or uh, keeping our promises in NATO under under the North Atlantic Treaty, or, or to Japan under the US, U.S.-Japan Security Treaty. If it's, a, if it's a good idea to be ambiguous, maybe we should rethink our other relationships. I never really get a good answer out of that one, but uh, I'm not sure why Taiwan would be an exception to that. So I think, that, I think, and I'm not sure, I'm well, not confident about saying that. Using
0: your own analysis, from your introductory remarks, Jim, you mentioned that yeah. sometimes by being very clear about what your objectives are, you paint yourself in the corner um, and reduce, by making it something non-negotiable um, yep. position, you paint yourself in a corner. Um, and we've done the opposite. We have not painted ourselves in a corner. It's unclear what the hell we're going to do in Taiwan. Um, yep. Isn't it that really what, exactly what you want?
2: Oh, you mean you're going to going back to Thomas Shelby and all that kind of stuff? Well, I mean, if you, if if I'm if I'm issuing a if I'm issuing a commitment, a steadfast commitment to it to and now, I don't I don't want anybody to to, to doubt that. And you, yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a fair a fair point. But if you leave that if you leave that in in the minds of the person you're trying to deter or the country you're trying to deter, at that at that point the deterrence starts to starts to break down. So I would I would describe that I think that's a little bit different situation. Although although I think think some of the psychological dynamics are are Similar, but again, do we really want to? Do we really want to, uh, Japan to worry about whether we will keep our commitments uh, to Japan in times of war or, or whatever? If they do, what's, the, what's their natural response? Japan, Japan might start start thinking about loosening up its uh, uh, commitment to the alliance, perhaps, uh, perhaps even denying us access to their soil. I mean, that's, uh, I mean that, that way lies madness. <laughs> so yeah, but so I think that's a, a case in which you want to be very clear. Kissinger, uh, in his in the early '60s, put out put out a book on deterrence, and he, he defined he defined deterrence uh, as, a, as a product of three things. First of all, it's basically a capability, so so the ability to do what you do what you want, what you say you will. You, you issue a threat, which is what deterrence is all about, and also the willpower to use that under the circumstances that you say you will. So, so there's there's that uh, element of strength that, that I mentioned before, and the last one is belief. The last variable is belief, and the belief on the part of the of the party that you're trying to deter that you will actually use your capabilities under the circumstances that you that you say you will, and you will inflict upon them punishment or deny them that deny them their aims that you're trying to, to forbid. So yeah, that's that's really where the that's really where the rubber meets the road. That belief variable. If I if, if I if I'm saying that uh, I may or may not keep my promise uh, to an ally. I'd, that it's, it's natural that uh, that belief variable is going, going to start to to degrade. Just as he has one more, and he act, he actually adds a coda to this little formula as well. He he, he notes that this is about multiplying multiplying these three variables, and therefore, if a, if any one of the three variables is zero, so is deterrence. So I can have all the capability and all the willpower in the world if the other side doesn't believe me, and then at that, then at that point I'm not going to deter, and that's a bad thing in this case.
0: I want to uh, try something crazy by you, and you can just uh, reject it out of hand, uh, <laughs> and that is uh, nuclear weapons. Um, what, what would happen if Taiwan announced tomorrow that it had nuclear weapons and was prepared to use it to defend the nation?
2: Well, you know that's a very that's a very good question, and it's it's it's, it's one that's in fact, Taiwan had a nuclear program, uh, uh, an undisclosed nuclear program, several several decades ago, and then basically disbanded it at the behest of the United States. I think, I, I, you know, it's it's a lot of it's. Whether you think they could actually stage a nuclear breakout overnight, I mean, they do have uh, nuclear power plants, and therefore, they, and therefore, they, they they have the expertise and potentially the materials to do this. It's a, it, but it's a, staging a nuclear breakout generally does not going to happen sort of by surprise like that. So if they if, now, if you assume that you could do that, then that, that could be a game changer. But I, but again, it would it would a lot would depend depend on the size of the arsenal. Could they actually? Could they actually do enough damage to to uh, uh, to China to actually deter China? And, and on and on. So you have to you have to start uh, analyzing all the elements of deterrence. The uh, well, for for anybody who hasn't studied deterrence, uh, nuclear deterrence before. But basically, basically the the gold standard of nuclear deterrence is the ability to carry out a, a, a second strike even after suffering a strike, a first strike from from your adversary. So. It's, it's, hard to, it's, kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to imagine that Taiwan would, uh, would come up with a nuclear arsenal that would, that would give it that invulnerable second-strike capability overnight. This would be a, a project that would probably take some time. So, it's, so yeah, but if, you know, if, if, it, if it happens, I guess, if it's a large enough I mean, enough just arsenal, to defend the indefensible,
0: imagine yeah. that
2: um, Taiwan yeah.
0: announced it had six nuclear weapons and would use yeah. it to, would that be enough to, do, to deter China from doing an attack?
2: Well, I mean, I guess I guess it's uh, I guess it's uh, it, you know, it all depends on well I guess a couple of things. First of all, how much uh, punishment is is, is uh, China willing to to absorb to to win a war with to win a war with Taiwan? I'd say, I mean, if it, it, it dropping a nuke on China. and again, like you said, we're defending the indefensible here. But if, I mean, if nuking Shanghai or something like that, is that a, is, is that above or the below below the Chinese threshold for for absorbing damage for the sake of Taiwan? I think that's a good question. I think there's also I think there's also an aspect of this as well. I mean, this is very valuable ground we're talking about in Taiwan. I mean, to what extent is China actually would China actually be willing to use nuclear weapons against Taiwan, even in, even in retaliation for, for a Taiwanese nuclear attack? And I think that's I mean, it wants to possess the ground for all the reasons that I cataloged. And I, I think that's I think that's something that uh, Bear is looking into as well. It, it, oh, by the way, you said that you, you mentioned uh, the figure of half a dozen uh, nuclear weapons. That that's actually that's actually what one of the one of the most peculiar one of the weirdest cases in nuclear history was uh, South Africa under the apartheid regime, actually built actually built a force of six uh, tactical nuclear weapons for for bizarre reasons. Like they they wanted to they basically compel the United States to come to South Africa's aid. In times of war against against its neighbors, simply by disclosing that they had a force of six tactical nuclear weapons, kind of just a bizarre story. And I think the I think the Taiwanese uh, breakout might fall into that uh, might, might sort of fall into that uh, tendency as well, or in the same category as well.
0: My final uh, list of questions for you is: mm-hmm. We've been analyzing Taiwan as um, an area that is. It's weak and uh, it has to prepare itself against attack. Um, but China itself is also weak. It, it has um, a very fast-growing economy with, you know, more than a billion people doing very well. Um, and it is not—it has not built its country um, at, on the defense in case of attack. What is China's weak underbelly? How can Taiwan? bring the war to China um, to um, undermine or deter uh, Xi from waking up that morning and, and not having the attack. That just as a little background on the show, What Happens Next? We had Alan Guelzo speak about uh, his biography of Robert E. Lee a couple of weeks ago.
2: Oh, right, and, right, right. Yeah.
0: And uh, what Guelzo said was that when you asked, if you were to ask Robert E. Lee for um, his strategy in the, in the U.S. Civil War it was to attack Pennsylvania and Maryland and uh, just run wild, cause chaos, and then um, you had some midterm elections coming up in 1862, um, and that's how you win the war. If you were going to deter, um, if you going to deter China from attacking Taiwan, would the Taiwanese want to blow up? Um, those big super container boats in the port um, limit the ability to have them do any exports, um, fire submarine missiles and do tremendous damage to chemical plants, creating an environmental disaster in, in, in China. I mean, it, it's a two way street. It's a mutual destruction. Um, how should we think about China's soft underbelly?
2: Well, I mean, you're making this a very military question, and I think that's certainly a key a key aspect of it. But when you talk about the Chinese soft underbelly, I think you're you're, you're talking more in grand strategic terms, and I think that's entirely entirely fitting. Hey, I'm not. I'm not one of the ones who, and I know I paint. I always paint a, a pretty dark picture when I talk about China and its capabilities. And I think that in the military sense, I think that's entirely fitting because it's it's become a serious problem. But I mean, if, if you look at some of the big, some of the major trend lines in China uh, over the next uh, coming years and decades, it, China does have a lot of problems. You mentioned the environment. You mentioned the environment. That, that's been a catastrophe ever since John King Fairbank wrote wrote, wrote his famous histories of China. Uh, many decades ago, you know, I don't think I don't think that things have really really improved all that much. Certainly not out in the countryside. and the cities are you know gleaming and so forth. But uh, but out in the countryside, I don't I, I think they still have a lot of problems. So that's I mean that's a drain on China's resources that it might put into security. Uh, other things, demographics. Which, I mean, demographics. Uh, the I know China has abolished the one ch- one-child rule, but it was in place for an awful long time, and they're going to have to deal with the with the, with the consequences of an aging population. So that'll be another that'll be another drain on Chinese resources. Uh, there are internal security problems. I mean, if, if you look at, I mean, it's kind of hard for us to know to, to us to know specific, specifically how bad this is. But if you look at the Chinese defense budget, about half of it goes to internal security, the people's armed police are the people's Armed police. It soaks up a large uh, large part of the Chinese defense spending. And that is not the behavior of a a comfortable regime that thinks it's securely in power. And and things like social credit scores and all all this kind of stuff that uh, Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party are using to try to keep the population in check. I mean that's that's, a, that's a just they have something to worry about and that, and I think that uh, I think that that's actually fair. So again, these uh, these I mean uh, some of these some of these trends are going to wear wear away at China's at China's long term uh, prospects. We're doing things against Taiwan and elsewhere in the world. However, before I before I round out this uh, round out this uh, this very long winded answer, that that doesn't mean that China is not not dangerous today. It's uh, our, the masters of strategy, the Clausewitzes and so forth. They, te- they they teach that sometimes. Even if you're weaker today, the weaker adversary today, it might make a sense to start a fight today if you think the trend lines are going, going against you and you would be in a, in a worse place next year. So, again, even even a China that, 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 that thinks its, uh, it's, it's rise is cresting or perhaps even descending could be a very dangerous China, I mean, and, I, and I think that uh, warrants our attention as well. Okay.
0: Um, I end each session on a note of optimism. I'm going to ask uh, both speakers about that. So Jack, heads up for you in a second, and I'll, I'll start with Jim first. Jim, um, tell me what are you what are you optimistic about?
2: What am I optimistic about? Well, I mean, in the field, I actually think that uh, if, you look, if you look if you look closely at what's going on in China and the United States, I, I actually in the in the U.S. military, I, I actually feel fairly upbeat about some something some things that are going on. I mean. For example, just I'm a server I'm an old surface sailor, so I think about I think in terms of anti ship missiles. We were, we were we were vastly outranged by the by the Chinese PLA Navy uh, until recent years. I.e., they could take they could take missile shots at, at us long 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 before we could close the range to, to return and fire. Several so, several things have happened. several things have happened, repurposing, repurposing existing technology, reinventing old technology, and so forth, and we we're actually correcting that problem. And in fact, in fact, in the next few years, I think it will be corrected so So. Again, Again, it's not all a bad news story of China, but there, there are good things happening, and I, and I feel I feel much more upbeat than I did about five years ago. Great,
0: uh, Jack Katz, if you're still around, uh, what are you optimistic okay. about?
1: <laughs> okay, the history of neighborhood development since 1965 in Hollywood and many other city areas shows that anarchy need not be feared. Anarchy isn't a permanent condition. The withdrawal of government power to structure social areas is not destructive to collective life. In diverse and unpredictable ways, local residents have an ability to organize collective responses, even without coordination from above or across neighborhoods. We should be optimistic that cities will continue to grow around historic nodes of density, and that while with an increasingly well-educated and highly paid population, some vibrant low-income ethnic neighborhoods will decline, Future mass entries of the foreign-born, which appears to be mounting very quickly, should create other vibrant new neighborhoods in the near future.
0: Jack, thank you so much. Thank okay, you. that ends today's session. Uh, I want to make a quick plug for next week. Uh, the first speaker will be Richard Bernstein, who is the Verilis Professor of Philosophy at the New School for Social Research Uh Richard is a celebrated scholar of American pragmatism, and I've asked him to speak about his book, Why Read Hannah Arendt Now?, Uh, Just for the record, I'm not related in any way to Richard Bernstein. It's just a common name. Um, Our second speaker is Mark Mahaney. He is a five-time number one institutional uh, equity analyst specializing in the Internet. Uh, He has a new book coming out entitled Nothing But Net, and he will take us through his 10 lessons for how to make decisions on what to invest in Internet and tech and growth stocks. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes or wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, in 6 minutescom Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. I want to thank both of our speakers today for their insights. I would also like to thank our listeners for their time and for engaging in these complex issues. Please stay tuned next Sunday to find out what happens next. Thank you, and you can disconnect at this time. Bye-bye.